0: And welcome. My name is Amrita Dhar, and I am the director of the project Shakespeare in the Post Colonies, which is hosting a series of interviews with post colonial Shakespeareans from around the world. In today's conversation, our invited collaborator, Professor Jyotsna Singh of Michigan State University, interviews the British theatre director, Iqbal Khan. Hello everyone, I'm
1: Professor Jyotsna Singh from Michigan State University, where I teach in the English department, uh, Shakespeare, Renaissance studies, Global Renaissance. And I am really delighted to introduce to you Mr. Iqbal Khan, who is a very famous director, artist, writer, actor from Britain and globally. A lot of his uh, bio will come out, but I think just briefly, uh, he has worked extensively with the Royal Shakespeare Company as well as directing for opera and classical music. Uh, His credit includes a brilliant Othello much Ado About Nothing, Macbeth. He has also directed Shakespeare in the Bowl in uh, Los Angeles. He has directed in Paris, Japan, and also delivered lectures. Most recently, he was the director of these magnificent Commonwealth Games. My own work has been very much informed by uh, Iqbal's kind of boundary crossings. I think we both belong, in a sense, to a boundary crossing world. So I'll start with a sort of general question, and we can kind of flesh out. Related to the project of Shakespeare and the Post-Colonies is you have, you are and have been a person of South Asian descent and a theatre practitioner uh, within the very central part of English-British theatre and theatre globally. What was it like to inhabit the world, a world that today claims to be post-colonial and claims to be the modern Britain? So just your thoughts on that.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very complicated question, isn't it? Because it, it makes me think about where, whether we all agree what post-colonial is and what is colonial. And I think that's framed my life's work and, and living within this community of artists has been this development of my relationship to the the mainstream, as it were, the colonising force of the, that kind of gatekeeps, the profession I suppose at the beginning, I very much felt like I needed to qualify because there was a certain kind of frame that allowed you to be valued in an appropriate way. Then as my confidence has grown and my name has grown, I felt more and more able to kind of, as it were, challenge the way these things have been historically framed and historically valued. So yeah, so I feel freer, much freer now to have the sorts of conversations that I want to have with my work. And I feel like the world is also... Much more receptive to those sorts of investigations.
1: Okay. I'll just follow up on this that, you know, one of the things I, you know, I personally found very impressive about your career is the early choices you made not joining, you know, quote unquote ethnic companies or not joining groups. So that was a kind of conscious choice when you weren't confident you didn't know where your work was going but you did make those choices and I've always found that very interesting I, I don't know if you want to briefly reflect on that
2: yeah I suppose briefly that the thing is is that I suppose it was a political act at the beginning but but it's partly to to, to do with how I fell in love with this art form and this work I from a very early age was reading Dickens I was reading the greats of the western literature uh, I was reading the Russians we didn't have a lot of money so I was I was watching theatre on on the screen and opera on the screen. None of the kind of excluding factors of these art forms affected me because it didn't cost anything to watch stuff on TV or to read it at home and and to play it at home with my brothers. So all of that felt completely available to me. And I suppose my confidence or my sense of ownership of it is rooted in the fact that My first engagements with it were my own, uh, weren't given to me by anyone. I took it and enjoyed it in the way that I wanted to enjoy it. And that voice inside me that loves it, that feels like I have something important to say about it, has always been there. When I started to engage professionally with the world and encountered a very different kind of opposition, a very different kind of gaze... That was a dislocation that I really needed to challenge and I had to find a way to sustain my confidence in myself. And that took years to strengthen. But when I started in the profession as an actor and also as a director, I did the stuff that I loved. As an actor, I thought I was best in the classical sphere. (laughs) As a director, I loved Jeanne, I loved Ionesco, The Absurdists, Beckett, and Shakespeare, obviously, and and Chekhov. That was the work that I was drawn to as an artist from the very beginning. And those ethnic companies that you talk about weren't doing those plays in the same way. And there was always an ethnic lens, as it were, that they were interpreting these things through. It was very important to me from the very beginning that I was recognized as a director and an actor, not as a British Asian actor and director. So I felt like I needed to play in their playing field and compete according to their systems and to win, as it were, in that context. That instinctively felt like a very important thing to do for me from the very beginning, to persuade myself that I had what it takes to succeed.
1: Thank you very much in your home, there was some experience of the South Asian diaspora Mm. that introduced you to all these works unmediated. Nobody told you about them. They were available to you. So maybe for our listeners, it might be interesting if you share some of that.
2: Well, I I suppose the the two dominant things for me were one, the oral tradition that I grew up with, which is my mother, my uncles, my aunties telling extraordinary stories of home beyond these borders in, in Britain, they were always mythic stories. My father died when I was very, very young. He sort of acquired this heroic dimension in all these stories. It felt like we, were, we had this Arthurian <laughs> destiny to sort of follow in this great man's footsteps. And their stories were told as performances, incredible language and impersonation of, of the various voices and things. So that joy, was always there they would sing and there were the rituals that came with all of that like when I was first shaved my uncle sang when I was shaved there's a ritual around all of that this coming of age ritual so there was that context which I think is really significant this poetic oral tradition muscular tradition then my brother my second oldest brother was discovering the various art forms that were available to him. He was bringing home stuff from the library, literatures and music, ranging from Bob Dylan to opera, Pink Floyd, reading Shakespeare, reading Dickens. He would come home and he would read these things to us and play these things to us. I was seven, eight, and just getting all of this stuff and riding on his enthusiasm. He hadn't studied in any of this. He was just soaking it up. And that was incredibly thrilling because he really was inspirational. He would talk about mathematics and physics in the same way as he would talk about classical music or Shakespeare or um, Dracula or Frankenstein. We would read these things. All of this stuff was read out loud. And we would all take bits and pieces and we would all talk about them into the early hours. So there was both a critical engagement with it and a kind of animal Erotic engagement with it as well. So, I suppose from that point of view, I was very lucky not to have the taint of the colonial valuing system, that we just had this, as as you say, unmediated interaction with all this great, great work.
1: I think this is really wonderful and really important. What I find fascinating is that there was a cross pollination between stories from home Mm. and songs and music and the great literary works and the opera of the West, which means there is a category of affective art and literature that shouldn't always be ideologically flattened. I think that's what I have learned from my conversations and my work with you. So you're telling us a different story of diaspora upbringing. You're not telling us a story of victimhood and politics, but you're telling us a story of accessing art of all kinds, To this wonderful home life.
2: Yeah, that's very good. That narrative of historical injustice, historical trauma was there. We certainly lived that here and we heard about it. But actually, my mother in particular was a very, very poetic creature. She did not victimize herself and certainly didn't victimize us. In fact, she did the opposite. She made us feel like we were princes in waiting. And the world was available to us. And that's actually what talk about my father and his experiences and their experiences growing up. And it felt like it wasn't just a Pakistani lens. It felt like the Arabian Nights. What was very clear to me then, and I didn't have the language for it then, but was that they contained multitudes. And my brother's attachment to all of this stuff, the various art forms that he was engaging with was again there was no hierarchy of of art it was like i said charlie pride don williams pink floyd the operas of verdi and wagner they were it was all available to us It's this sense of being multivalent of having lots of voices that make up who we are different voices inscribed by our ancestors and those that are available to us here it felt like it was all feeding us and told truths about us That were beyond the specifics of our ethnic heritage.
1: Of course, you were acknowledging colonial history, but you were also laying claims to European and British culture on your own terms. Different people can claim art as their own, it doesn't Mm. have to be controlled. I think that's to me also a very, very important and interesting part of your story. I think moving maybe a little bigger within the British culture, since you taught many classes, you lectured, you had access to a lot of young people over the years. In your experience, have you found Shakespeare useful in some ways of decolonizing a kind of standard worldview or the curriculum or the sort of Britishness
2: Oh, God, yes. So, why I think that phrase is useful is if we're talking about changing the center of gravity of how we engage with things. So, decolonizing the curriculum for me is not about erasing certain voices or certain art forms or certain works in favor of others. It's about including those that haven't been historically available. I suppose that's been very important to me. And Shakespeare profoundly is about complicating experiences. Shakespeare's plays are so multi-voiced, multi-perspective-wise, there's no stable or authoritative perspective in those plays. And so they're incredibly useful at just opening out experience and talking about open experiences, complicating nuanced investigations of different kinds of truths and that's always been the thing that's excited me most about these works is that I think if we appropriate them in the ways we want to they can always bear riches for all of us whatever our experiences are whenever I've engaged with young people I've always found that there's always a way into them that is urgent to them that is urgent to their experience their context which is, I suppose an index of any great work of art is that it's always open. It's always susceptible to very many different ways into them.
1: What I'm getting from your very articulate formulation is that we have to make it a bigger tent. So we have to include people so they can be Shakespeare and they can be fairs, em fairs, and everything can be together because a lot of contemporary ideas of decolonizing often means who do we get rid of and who do we add? and I think in your vision which again is very important for the listeners and for me personally is it's about inclusion but in a big tent way
2: yeah and in a way I suppose the challenge of that is that it challenges traditionally accepted points of view or authoritative points of views so it makes certain people who have historically had ownership of the work, it challenges that ownership. So yes, I can understand how it makes people very, very uncomfortable, but I think that's a very, very healthy thing, both for them and for the works themselves that benefit from opening them out to other gazes.
1: Sure. Yeah, exactly. People would always see your work in some ways as political. Then what do you see the role of ideology in
2: art? I balk at the word ideology because it has the resonances of a fixed tenant of belief and there's nothing fixed about anything that motivates my work. Everything for me is provisional. I'm constantly learning and challenging the paradigms that form my understanding of the world. But political, I'm completely unafraid to use that word about my work. And I use that not just in a domestic, personal sense, but also in a wider sociological sense. I think all of these plays, particularly Shakespeare's works, yes, are incredible and surprising human dramas, but they're also extraordinary and subversive political dramas. And I always try and find a way in, try and find the surprising thing that they're doing, particularly in the present context. And that changes for me whenever I go back to these works and whenever I I have the privilege of working on any one of them. I might have historically had a certain perception of things, but then when I look at them again now today... All of that shifted again because I shifted and the world shifted and they always shift with me. I think it's very important not to be afraid to get into the political with these plays because they examine these things profoundly. And in all of my productions, there's always a very profound and serious political dimension to what I'm trying to do with these plays.
1: That's really, really important and brilliant because I think you make a very clear distinction between political and ideological.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely vital. I'm delighted you're underlining that because part of the reason why I love working in the theatre and I love rehearsal rooms is because any perception, perspective that I might have had before I started work with with others in that room gets challenged. And we always, as a group, come out of it, I hope, moved, changed, uh, our understanding of things has profoundly shifted because for me, it's very important whether there are 23 people or four people in that room that I give each one of them the space and freedom to talk in the way they want to about the work and their own experience and how they refract the play through their experience. And that will always challenge and develop our thinking about things. For me, that's one of the most important aspects of theatre, it is unstable, you do change your mind about things, that you do come out of it shifted in your thinking and what you hope is that you create an experience for audiences that shift them, that surprise them, that they might love say a Hamlet because let's say that they think the Hamlet is about a demagogue as it were and it's a lone kind of voice in, in Hamlet that is challenging, that is more anarchic and that the conversation is about that and then you can come back to it and you can go well maybe claudius is a very good leader politically much more skillful than hamlet and but for how he acquired his position he might have been an extraordinarily perceptive and nuanced leader is hamlet a great politician he might be a great philosopher but would he have been a great leader you see i'm asking something that i think It is quite a kind of subversive question like that might change completely how you might view that play.
1: Thank you. One thing I'd just like to say, as we all know, Shakespeare didn't like Puritans.
2: No, (laughs) exactly.
1: You know, I always tell you he didn't like Puritans, so we can see he wasn't for one single view. I think your most recent success was the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham, which is your hometown, I think, if you would call it. The displays and the choreography. If you wanted to briefly share with us your experience and what it meant, especially because it was in Birmingham, what it meant for the South Asian community, for you, just in any way.
2: It's an overwhelming responsibility to to have to do something that plays to 30,000 people live and then potentially a billion and a half worldwide and to find a way to both find something to celebrate in the Commonwealth idea while not ignoring the tensions and the challenges from the past and to celebrate Birmingham, just to celebrate this place, to balance all of these things. And again, you know, for me, an authentic celebration does not ignore the challenges that, are, that have existed in a, in a place or with an idea like like the Commonwealth. And so so I wanted to try and find a way to tell a story to rather than make it a series of kind of performances, kind of variety show, I wanted to do what I do as a theatre practitioner, which is tell a kind of story, a parable, and through that parable to explore a lot of issues. And, you know, one of those issues is the Commonwealth is a great aspiration, but it's never been a reality. <laughs> is it a aspiration worth celebrating? And my contention is that, that it is and that we're moving in the right direction, that Birmingham is a great Commonwealth city now. But again, it's had a challenging past. But the drama of the influence of all these different voices that have come from the Commonwealth, I am a child of the Commonwealth. And there are many others like me in in Birmingham. And to tell our story, to dramatize how this place has been enriched, maybe sometimes through struggle, but has been enriched by our influence, feels to me like a very, very important thing to do and to find the symbols that, that can convey that. So something like the bull, for instance, as a symbol of historical oppression, that once its armor is stripped and we get to a more vulnerable place with it that actually we find a greater strength in the symbol of the bull that a symbol that at the beginning is terrifying that but that becomes a symbol of light a symbol of love a symbol of inclusion by the end and to find a way to feature the communities that have made this place up so in my case you know that's the south asian community there's at least a 50 60 year history of migration serious migration to this place But it's not always been straightforward. The rivers of blood speech by Enoch Powell was a a call to be wary of further integration because Enoch Powell's uh, formulation was that they would inevitably result in rivers of blood further integration. Now, thankfully, that hasn't happened, but those formulations still exist. So it wasn't just a historical exercise. These are important truths to reinforce now, I think. I was trying to do all of that, just to find the joy authentically.
1: Yeah, I think it did definitely succeed. I saw parts of the Commonwealth Games when I was in India, and I could see the reaction there was very positive. Since we sort of began with Shakespeare, let's end with Shakespeare. You can refer to some particular plays or moments. I loved your Othello. I worked on Much Ado. Looking back, is some Shakespeare play or moment really memorable? Something that was a kind of game changer for you?
2: I, I mean, Othello's been a play that sort of followed me through, through throughout my life. And it was one of the first Shakespeare plays I did in the professional context. I mean, I played Othello before I directed Othello. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I first played him, I played him in a company of Oxbridge-educated white actors who all spoke with a certain kind of voice that immediately made me feel like I was smaller than I was. It was a real challenge for me in that production to value what I was doing. Eventually I did, but it was a real struggle to get away from the, the sense of that inherited authoritative voice in this work. When I came to direct it for the first time in Leicester, in a studio production just after 9-11. I set it in a kind of aesthetic that was like Ground Zero. I was using it to look directly at what was going on in the world at the moment. I also did it with a handful of actors. so I I reduced the playing time to about an hour and a half with six actors. I wanted to sort of throw away the usual kind of binaries that are explored in that play. There's a company of South Asian actors with a black actor playing Othello and a white actress playing Amelia. So immediately you're kind of othering people in different ways. There were different kinds of Asians who were playing the, the different part. I was looking at what kind of Asian can play Iago and, and Cassio, and what gives them different class statuses, as it were. Amelia is an other in this context, in our context. There's enormous racism in the Asian community against black people. So I wanted to kind of explore that which is something that I'd experienced very much growing up. So it, it became a way for me to really explore all of these things. And I knew that young people from schools in Coventry and Leicester and Birmingham were coming to see this, Asian kids, teenagers. And I wanted them to feel like I was talking about the world that they were living in. Subsequently, when I did it at the RSC, I did similar kinds of experiments with it on a bigger scale, where I basically cast the as a as a different kind of black man to Othello again, to challenge this idea that Iago is simply a proto-fascist. I was more interested in what he incited in others, the racism that Iago incited in others, than his own particular racism, the power of his rhetoric, and the fractures in our world that mean that people are susceptible to certain kinds of rhetoric. It feels to me like now... That's even more relevant than it was in 2015 when I did that production. So again, that was a game-changing production in terms of doing it at the RSC and it being embraced and being recognized more broadly in, in the mainstream media. It's a consistent exploration that has happened throughout my life with that play in particular. I've tried to do that with every single play that I've done. And it's not always the ethnic thing that I'm doing, or, you know, look at the racial conversation. There's almost always some kind of political conversation component to what I'm doing. So in Antony and Cleopatra, it was the fundamental conversation around where the capital of the world is going to be. Antony's relationship with Cleopatra sets up a dynamic in that play, which is a challenge to, is the capital of the world going to be in Rome or is it going to be in Egypt, in Alexandria? And the world would be very different if Antony and Cleopatra had won that debate. And similarly, with much ado, setting it in modern Delhi and looking at the different kinds of relationships to women, the different kinds of experiences of women in India, the hierarchical and the ancient sense of what a a woman is, but also in, in modern India, modern women having this very bifurcated sense of agency, the fact that all conversations in front of servants. The servants are invisible, so they hear and see everything, which is very useful in that play. So I'm always trying to tease out of the context the things that are important about these plays in the world at the moment.
1: Maybe tell us a little bit more about your projects in hand. What are you thinking of? What are you looking ahead? Is Shakespeare figure in it? What are some of the things, if you can share with us at this time?
2: There are things that I might be doing. That are, I mean, the next project I'm doing is, is I'm restaging the Tartuffe that I did at the RSC. And this Tartuffe was a development of it, an adaptation of it that, that is set in modern Birmingham in the Pakistani community, the Islamic community. And worked incredibly well at the RFC in The Swan. It's quite a dangerous play, and it's particularly dangerous if the religious debate or the context is on a knife edge. It's funnier, but it's also more meaningful, and the satire has more resonance, if that's the case. And we were very careful when we developed it that it seems to me with Mollier, what he's doing is he's not critiquing religion as such. He's critiquing the credulity of people to agents of religion that feels like a very important conversation to have at the moment and so our version of the play has and this is very important there is no homogenous muslim voice or experience or community that there are many many different kinds of islam represented in our version and actually celebrated in that version so i'm delighted to be able to stage it now in birmingham to share it with that audience and to develop it, because when I revisit it, the world has moved. And I'm really excited to kind of see I, how.
1: I would like to share with the audience, since I saw that play, especially went to RSC. And as a Punjabi, uh, I thought what was fascinating, and I wanted to share with the audience, that this, the satire worked internally. They were all satirizing each other. Again, this was political, but not ideological. And what I loved was it had in the play very old Punjabi songs that you don't hear anymore. So you can imagine the resonance for the South Asians. I just love the play on the level of my own experiences. And, and, and the satire very critical of credulous people. Yes. But it didn't make Muslims feel less. And I think that was a very fine line. I'm really glad you're doing it again. And I hope there'll be more chances for you to talk about that is the kind of multiculturalism we need, you know, which is political and edgy, uh, but doesn't put
2: down people. And ultimately, I think, I think this is very important for me, is compassionate. I think every project I do, I have to find in it what's beautiful about human beings. What is it celebrating about the way we are? So what's a threat about those things which I think are fragile and beautiful about the way we interact with each other, how our societies are susceptible to rupture? Because it's very important to me that no matter how much I challenge and no matter how subversive the thing I do is, that ultimately there has to be some hope, some light leaking in, some sense of that which we can celebrate, that which we can aspire to.
1: Right. And I think in that play, the grandmother was the most, I mean, the humanity of the world was in her. She didn't hesitate to express her views, her opinions. I think she was an amazingly humane figure.
2: I mean, it's very interesting you mention her because one of the things that I discovered with, with that play was that actually to play that underneath it on a human level, it's about parenting. It's about the absence of the mother. The father has remarried. This new wife has not been accepted by anyone. Basically, the cleaner is mothering the children. And into that absence comes Tartuffe. And when the mother talks about the previous wife, she's undone by it because there is a massive absence there. And so I suppose the journey of the play is to find the thing that makes everyone commit again to each other, to find that love, to find the thing that lets in this new wife that reforms the family in a different way it's very moving but i think it's very important for us when we're working on these plays to sort of discover those dynamics underneath and to take that audience on that journey otherwise it's just making cruel jokes (laughs) And that's not enough, I think. I think we can do more than that.
1: That is what is needed. You don't look for things, you know, in some ways things also come to you, you know, in in, there's an organic process of work you do, right? Isn't there something organic? I've always wanted you to explore the Pakistani poet Faiz Ahmed Faiz, who I always say, Faiz better than Shakespeare.
2: (laughs) 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 I know a little bit about Faiz, but I certainly Don't know as much as as anyone as much as you do, and
1: I've actually recently written something more on that. One way to go to it is look at the film Heather, Mm. which is the on Hamlet, which is framed by Faiz's poetry. Mm. It's something people don't follow. So Faiz's poems run through that film because one of the things Faiz was like Shakespeare, he criticised Puritans, Mm. and he said, "Who is untainted in this world?" That was his basic motto. So I feel that if you discovered Faiz. Like the stories you heard in i mean, that generation of your relatives, they all must know fair, you know, yes, who yes. told you stories. I thought your Macbeth was a very interesting production on the globe, which where you did with Ray Fieron was amazing and the Tara Fitzgerald. I think that was an amazing production.
2: Mm-hmm. This is a different conversation, but it's very interesting how that split the critics at the time. Because I mean there were those that absolutely embraced it, and then there were those that, that found it messy. I think they wanted me to provide concrete answers. Actually, what I was doing was quite the opposite. I was trying to open that play out and have poetic elements in it that I wasn't going to lock down. So there was a young child that walked around that stage and came on at the beginning with a blind old man and looked like a child that had just wandered out of the audience. I didn't explain that child. He moved throughout the piece and then at the end ended up on the throne and only became visible to everyone on stage at that final moment. Earlier on, both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth at different points acknowledged the presence of this young child. Macbeth became more and more obsessed with the presence of this child as he became more and more paranoid in the final third of the play. It was just a very... Interesting way for me to explore the childlessness or the legacy of this couple. And again, a massive motor in the play for me. But it's interesting because I've always found this with the critical fraternity here. No matter how well the last production has gone, I'm always susceptible to charges of not being able to counter to three. So I, I had multiple witches not Mm. the three. You know, it was almost as if I hadn't counted right. Now, the way we created the witches was to formulate them with body parts and create three different puppeted creatures. But there were four or five women that created them. There were those critics that got that, that understood that, but there were those that chose to make that a sticking point for them and that I couldn't count to three. I'm always aware and I try to resist the pressure to qualify to those people, because I feel there's something dishonest about that critical gaze.
1: This is maybe another subject for another time. The critical gaze in England has not varied enough. The plays have changed, but the critical gaze seems to be somewhere else. I think Macbeth was a very good example because I saw the production and I read the reviews, but it's like they don't get it often willfully. there's a willful when I remember the Julius Caesar somehow they felt that was Roman I remember the reviews of that that was Roman so maybe Britain needs to call up a different army of reviewers
2: I think that's happening actually but I think there's another conversation about the brief that reviewers get and the space they get to sure uh, to talk about things and also just the kind of drama that they need to frame these reviews in the reviewing world isn't susceptible to really kind of nuanced investigations of productions i think they've got to find the you know the buzz headline the clickbait point of view on the thing so maybe it's a game changer or it's it's appalling and there's nothing in between there's this very little nuanced investigation of things
1: the last you know in the pandemic i haven't seen but i think now they're they sometimes they are fearful of offending
2: yeah maybe uh, You know,
1: there's that now. This it's the other circle. Then you know, they were asking you, can you count to three? But now they're afraid to say anything.
2: Well, well, Uh, well, they're they're either afraid to say it or they're they're purposely embracing offence. So it it feels like there's something else going on. There's another kind of culture war going on. Mercifully, there are lots of younger reviewers coming on the scene who seem not to be doing that.
1: But yeah, Um, but the
2: editorial kind of framework seems to be embracing a different kind of cultural war
1: sure yeah I mean it's all changing by the moment maybe let's end with asking what is the Shakespeare play that you really want to do you haven't done or maybe one or two plays that you would love to do or Uh, I
2: mean there there are so many Lear is a play that I've always wanted to do it's always the play that's sort of disturbed me most that I find most it's not bleak because I find it profoundly moving and, and I think there's enormous compassion in the final third of that play But it it does feel the most fractured, the most Bacchettian of those plays. It feels to me like it's it's very appropriate for the world that we live in at the moment. But then the other side of that coin is a play like Titus Andronicus, which is this extraordinarily vibrant, daringly funny play but that's also about the most appalling and awful atrocities. And just the Elan of that, the, the dramaturgical invention of that play is so exciting to me. And I love the fact that Aaron the Moor is one of the proudest black men in dramatic literature. <laughs> yes, he's quotes evil, but actually he doesn't victimize himself. And he's very much playing with the white people in that play, left, right, and center. And he's he's incredibly celebratory of his pigmentation. So yeah, I mean, a play like that, and there's so many of the comedies that I think Twelfth Night, As You Like It, All's Well That Ends Well, I just think they're so problematic, I mean, particularly All's Well, but I, I love that. I love how unsettling these plays are, measure for measure, really unsettling. There's no end, All's Well That Ends Well is one of the most ironic titles of a play that you could come across. Nothing ends well in that play. Measure for Measure, these constrained happy endings, I think, are really Interesting.
1: Have you ever thought of doing something with the poetry? Like Rape of Lucrece or um, Venus and Adonis*? Have those figured in some ways in which you can work with them? uh,
2: They're all really quite disturbing pieces, aren't they? I mean, particularly Rape of Lucrece. I know that Greg did a really interesting production of it with puppets and narration. Anything for me that is looking at agency, looking at... In a post kind of hashtag me too... World, These pieces take on a whole other kind of connotation. And so, yeah, they do feel very hot, very, very, very dangerous pieces. So, yeah, I'd be very, very intrigued and interested in exploring them.
1: We have a few minutes left. We're just going to leave you to just chat and reflect and say anything you want.
2: I suppose the one thing I'd leave you with at the moment that I'm, I'm sort of thinking about a lot at the moment is open casting of things. There is a massive pressure at the moment and a welcome pressure on the mainstream to represent more widely in terms of who's directing, what experiences, who's doing the representing of experiences and what qualifies you to represent those experiences. So a black person should be telling a black person's story, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that pressure is welcome. However, one of the things that I think is getting lost in all of this is that I think one of the most beautiful things about theatre is that it breaks the one-to-one representation of experience, that it's not like TV, where everyone looks like what they're representing, is that we can have a Black woman and a younger white man, and she can say that I am this person's mother or that I am this person's sister. And so long as they state it at the beginning and then they play it persuasively enough that we can go on that experience with them. It's very important that, yes, we are able to tell our stories, but that we're also able and allowed to tell human stories and to open out representation, to complicate it. Because you talked about Fez earlier on, and I don't know anywhere near as much about Fez as I should. And that makes me feel less Asian. (laughs) But I know a hell of a lot about Bob Dylan, and I know a hell of a lot about Milton. So I am full of those absences and contradictions and and I think that allows me to enter into an experience and to open out that experience to a really broad constituent of people. So I think it's important, but looking forwards, that when we think about who gets to tell what story, that we don't close it down too much, that verisimilitude isn't what it's all about, that the poetic element, that we break the one-to-one representation, that theatre is allowed and continues to be a poetic medium.
1: Well, we're Coming towards the end of this very illuminating and stimulating conversation, and we would like to thank you. I'm just delighted to continue a conversation about all these topics that we love. And so, thank you, Iqbal, and thanks very much to our listeners.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to this podcast, spread the word, and leave a review. Do take a look also at our project website at shakespearepostcolonies.osu.edu for materials supplementing this conversation and for further project details. Thank you for listening and until next time. For the Shakespeare in the Post Colonies project, I am Amrita Dhar.